0: And let's set the Business Week agenda on this Monday. Joining us, Dave Wilson, stock setter at Bloomberg News, on the remote access in New Jersey. Kat Chaglinski, finance reporter covering all things Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett, because we've got some news from the weekend here at Bloomberg News. She's going to join us in just a moment on the phone in Virginia. Hey, Dave, let's kick it off with you. Uh, the trade today, how does it feel? What are you seeing?
2: Well, I mean, there's a fair amount of movement among the economically sensitive areas of the market. All you have to do is look at the 11 million industry groups in the S&P 500. You see commodity producers at the forefront of the gains, uh, whether it be energy or raw materials. You know, uh, you had the folks at uh, Barclays come out and uh, take a more favorable view of oil services. So one of the stocks that they decided to raise their rating on, Baker Hughes, one of the best performers on the day in the S&P 500, up 8.7%. So that stock jumps out in terms of uh, uh, its gain. Uh, you look on the other side of ledger, you see Estee Lauder down 6.8%. Their fiscal third quarter results not going over well at all. Yeah, in part because the company's talking about how, you know, it's a coronavirus pandemic. We just don't get as many chances to put on makeup. I'm not wearing lipstick. It gets in the way of a mask, Dave. It's as simple as that. (laughs) It absolutely does. And that's an issue for the company. So you look at their latest quarterly results. Sales missed the average estimate for only the second time in four years. And uh, their gross profit margin was lower than analysts were anticipating, too. So not the best set of results from Estee Lauder. Uh, Kat Glinsky, come on in here.
1: Uh, we're talking Berkshire Hathaway a little bit. Shares of Berkshire Hathaway higher by more than 2% today. Perhaps that's because we finally got some news about succession. Greg Abel, who is he, Kat?
3: Well, so he's one of Buffett's top deputies. And, you know, Buffett sort of always dominates the, uh, the show when it comes to Berkshire. But Greg Abel is, you know, a longtime energy executive at the company. He's for many years, run that business quite successfully and struck many deals, which is kind of a key skill to have if you're going to be Berkshire's next
0: CEO. What does it mean, though, for Ajay Jain? Right, because both of these guys were kind of on a path where maybe either of them could have succeeded Buffett, but it looks. But now we know Greg seems to have the job.
3: Agreed. And, you know, I don't think this is the end of the road for Ajit Jain at Berkshire, unless he chooses it to be. You know, mm-hmm. I think he's well-respected by Buffett. Buffett, even at this year's annual meeting on Saturday, really praised him. And he's even said before that Ajit Jain has probably made more money for Berkshire than Buffett himself has. Um, so I think I think Ajit Jain is going to stick around. I mean, he obviously has a very special, you know, expertise with the insurance stuff, and that's going to be key. And honestly, I think Berkshire would kind of be served better if you know, while um, Greg is running all the operations kind of broadly, Ajit can really focus on making sure that their insurance businesses kind of keep a
0: competitive edge. Well, good point. And there's so many moving parts to this. I know, Kat, you and I talk a lot about uh, Berkshire Hathaway. Dave Wilson, come on in on this. You know, Berkshire does. We look to Warren Buffett and Berkshire to kind of get an idea of what's going on in the global economy. Take a look at the stock. How has it been doing? Because, um, you know, he was late to the to the party when it came to big tech, but Definitely got on board. Uh, How do investors see the stock?
2: Well, I mean, you look at how Berkshire's doing this year, uh, up about 21%, Mm. which you can see from the Class B shares. They're the ones in the S&P 500, not the astronomical share price that you get with Class A. So at the very least, I mean, Berkshire's beating the broader market. And, uh, you know, to some extent, it's the success of their investments as part of it, too. You know, the whole question of cutting uh, Berkshire steak and apple came up over the weekend at the shareholder meeting. And, and it's been a real home run for Berkshire to have that investment in the iPhone maker. And, and that's why, you know, people were wondering, well, why would you ever sell? So, you know, there you go.
1: Hey, Kat, other big takeaways from this weekend. Everyone was watching it really closely. In general, how is Warren Buffett? How are Charlie Munger? How are they thinking about where the economy is right now? And how are they thinking about the recovery?
3: This is kind of an interesting tidbit. you know, Buffett said that right now the economy seems quite red hot. Like there's a couple of signs of inflation, you know, even to the extent that Berkshire is actually increasing prices on some things. And so I think there's been this real indication. And I thought was what I thought was really interesting at the meeting is Buffett was sort of in a way apologetic about what had happened over the past year. Yeah. You know, he, he, he wished he would have, you know, taken more advantage of the the downturns in the market. He said it wasn't Buffett or it wasn't Berkshire's finest moment, but to all fairness, you know, a lot was going on at the time and he had to, as he put it, you know, he's Berkshire's chief risk officer. So he had to, you know, make sure that Berkshire was going to make it through the pandemic. And a lot was still uncertain last year. And, and to Munger's point, you know, not every money manager can exactly point out the bottom of the market and spend all their money at that time. <laughs> so I think, you know, I think he's he's been surprised a bit by the pace of the recovery in the U.S. And so it's going to be interesting to see, you know, like if it actually – if that view about how the economy is recovering really plays out in
0: um, sort of his investments over the next couple of months. Kat, real quickly, 30 seconds. Is there any expectation that he will officially Warren Buffett step down and Greg Abel takes over or not anytime soon? I mean, this is a guy who loves his company and loves being kind of the face person of that company.
3: Yeah, and I think the way he phrased this confirmation that Greg Abel is going to take over if he steps down, you know, was a clear indication that he doesn't expect to anytime soon. <laughs> and when you look at Buffett and Munger on stage at Saturday, I think there was still a sign that they really enjoyed it. Yeah, so
1: they were happy. I that was great. Soon 90 and great. 97. Yeah. It's remarkable. It is remarkable.
0: Um, Good stuff, both of you. Thank you so much. Dave Wilson, he's going to be back a little bit later on with his chart of the day here in our New York City Bureau. And Kat Glinski, finance reporter, all things Buffett and Berkshire for us at Bloomberg News. Check her out on Twitter at K underscore Chiglinski. She's on the phone in Virginia. A lot going on. U.S. infections, though, did rise at the slowest pace of the pandemic. That's the good news, Tim. A reminder, though, that it's a global crisis. Daily deaths in India hitting a record 3689 On Sunday, the number of cases did slow slightly, though. The country, though, did become the first to cross the mark of 400,000 cases in a day. And you were looking at those global numbers. Yeah,
1: the global numbers are are just... uh really really bad here uh, global cases approaching 153 million deaths exceeding 3.2 million uh, but more than 1.16 billion doses of the vaccine have been given so there are a couple different stories playing out here
0: yeah exactly so let's get to it with dr ryan kay she is division chief at providence regional medical center Everett. you might recall providence saint joseph health is one of the largest healthcare systems in the united states massive uh, and dr Kay joins us on the phone from everett washington dr Kay, good to have you here on bloomberg business week so it's getting better in the US, not so in India. But as Tim just mentioned, some of those global numbers, they're just staggering any way you cut them.
4: Thank you for having me. Yes, they're, they're quite staggering. And I think that um, while we sort of saw our, our darker hours last year, um, it's important to keep in mind that the pandemic is
1: still happening. So how do we make sense of this as a, as a global society? as a global citizen, where here in the U.S., the numbers are the best they've ever been. But at the same time, it seems like what happened in Brazil a month ago is happening in India now and could happen in another country next month.
4: Well, I think we can't think of ourselves as um, divided communities. I mean, with global travel, global economies, things like pandemics can rapidly change and spread. And and keeping that in mind and remembering that vaccination is the single most effective tool we have to
1: fight this. So to that end, the White House uh, just moments ago said that it would back Pfizer's move to begin U.S. vaccine exports. President Biden won't intervene as Pfizer begins to ship from U.S. plan and Biden has used wartime powers to corner the market on U.S. protection. We as a country have been accused of hoarding vaccine by several other countries. Is, is this the beginning of the end or is there just so much work to do? And it's just getting billions of people vaccinated, no matter how you do, it takes months or years.
4: It does. And I think that this is going to be, you know, the new influenza. We may see um, requirements for yearly vaccines and it's going to be quite the global effort to get everyone uh, or as many as possible vaccinated.
0: Dr. K, one thing we wanted to ask you, because the West Coast and your region specifically, we've been talking with members uh, of your team and Providence St. Joseph Health almost from day one. And we're a little sensitive last week when we started to see another rise in cases out of the Pacific Northwest. What are you seeing, what are you hearing? Are you concerned that there's going to be a variant that creates another wave across the United States if we don't get enough of the US population vaccinated?
4: Well, it seems right now that the variants are responsive to the vaccine, as in the vaccine is protective to the major variants that we're seeing right now. And we have some new therapies that we didn't have previously, including some monoclonal antibody infusions. And so I don't think that we'll be in the exact same place, but I, but I think it's important. You know, you've seen the news as state after state has decided to open up
3: mm-hmm.
4: that, that this isn't over yet. And, and I think that, um, you know, everybody's ready to take a collective breath and just kind of let this go. It's been very stressful. It's been a very stressful year and a half. And um, I think if we uh, relax too much too quickly, then, then we may see a backslide.
0: I was just going to say, if, if I had a buck for every time I use the word stress in the last week, I'd be a pretty rich woman. <laughs>
1: yeah, I might, have, <laughs> I might have years added to my life.
0: Well, you know, I do wonder, um, it's interesting, because you do say we have new therapies. So we've come a long way. So you're not concerned about, you know, that we're, we're in a much better place, basically, whatever comes at us. Is that fair to say?
4: We are in a better place, and as a clinician, in the beginning, it was really scary. You didn't know Mm. what, you know, all of the criteria for for symptoms for COVID were changing. The um, protective equipment recommendations were changing. It was just almost a daily evolution, and you had to process all this information while trying to take care of patients, being worried about your own health, your family's health. We just have so much more information now that's helping us deal with this in in a logical and scientific way.
1: What's a realistic way for us to think about life six months from now, one year from now? Are we still walking around wearing masks or are, are we still seeing hotspots throughout the world?
4: I think that we'll see hot spots flare throughout the world as we move forward. It's a virus and viruses mutate. But if you think about an organism that wants to survive, they don't necessarily always mutate to get more deadly. They just get more infectious. So it may, as I, you know, I mentioned before, this may become just another flu. Um, and I think it's been a wake-up call. It's been a wake-up call for, um, for all of us to, to be wary, to be um, more cognizant of our activities, of basic things in the schools, like washing your hands and sanitation and crowding and everything that can, can lead to rapid spread of a pandemic.
1: Dr. K, we got some some questions from a listener who who reached out wondering about long COVID and early on in the vaccine effort, we heard anecdotal experience from people who had said that after getting vaccinated, their long COVID symptoms went away. What do we know at this point about the way the vaccine can can change people's experiences who are so-called long haulers?
4: I don't think that it's really well understood the symptoms that last for a long time. I mean, the COVID vaccine is a little piece of the virus, the piece that, that gains entry into the cells and, um, and starts uh, with the infection. And so, so I think that it's, it's not entirely clear, but, but what seems to be clear is it's likely an interaction with our immune system and how our own immune system is regulating the symptoms.
1: So, what about the idea of, of treatments for long COVID actually being something that we've made progress on? Have we, we? You did mention treatments, but are the treatments there for people who have been sick for, for months?
4: Well, a lot of the treatments that we're looking at right now are treatments that we have more for the acute phase of illness so when people initially get sick and not so much for these these long symptoms
1: it 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 does seem like the long COVID is just something that is still not understood
4: it isn't it really is not well understood but i think there's a lot of diseases out there that are similar to that you know there are people who get uh neurological diseases following viral infections like Guillain-Barre syndrome there's Mm -hmm. all sorts of things that are not as well known to the public because it wasn't this big pandemic but But we're aware of in in medicine, um, and and is an area ripe for more research.
0: Okay, so maybe because we have Neil Ferguson on later, and he's got a book out called *Doom: The Politics of Catastrophe*, and certainly looking at the pandemic and talking about our next disaster, I do wonder: Are viruses getting much more potent? you know, we don't. The flu virus kills a lot of people, also, and we should put that out there. But I, I do wonder: is there something happening with virus progression and development on a scientific and medical level that that makes you think, "Wow, we've we've really got to kind of get our act together here."
4: I don't think viruses are getting more potent. I think that our population is getting bigger and more concentrated. Mm. And the viruses are opportunistic and they're taking advantage of the fact that we're we're packed into this planet like sardines.
1: <laughs> it certainly feels that way. it It does, but it also it, I think travel has a big part to play in this, doesn't it? The fact that that intercontinental travel is is just a, a thing that's you know we don't even shrug at.
4: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, just think it during the spanish flu if travel had been as prevalent as it is today how that would have played out differently
0: hey just got about a minute and a half left here but women's health awareness week kicking it off on mother's day may 9th you think about this preventive screenings i think about it and i know last year as soon as everything opened up i made sure i ticked off all of my boxes when i could get back to medical facilities easily and safely what would you say to women out there uh in regards to all of that
4: I, I think that you've said it the best. I think that really taking care of yourself during this time, whether you're a mother or not, whether you're working or not, um, making sure to do your routine screening. What we, what we saw when, when COVID hit was that a lot of um, quote-unquote elective surgeries or procedures or screenings were put on hold for months and months. And it's really, really important to not delay them any further. You don't want to end up with any surprises down the road.
1: I do have to credit Carol with pushing me to go to the dentist for the first time uh, in like a year, uh, a few months <laughs> ago. So she is really good at, 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 at that. Um, a little I, bit of a nag. Yeah, but in a I'll good way, in a good way, because you care. <laughs> I
4: do care. I mean, are
1: you seeing Are you seeing people who were hesitant to come in now more comfortable coming in? Or are people still putting off preventive screenings? And we'll have about 30 seconds left.
4: Yeah, I think a lot of people are, are coming in again. Um, you know, in the emergency department alone, and this is obviously emergency and not preventive, our volumes dropped down to fifty percent of what they were pre-COVID um, during the COVID infection. Something not a lot of people knew, and we're seeing patients coming back, patients coming back for their emergencies, patients coming back for their preventive health, and that is a fantastic thing. And I think there's a lot more platforms out there now for them to to seek care with the mm-hmm. telehealth and virtual visits and all sorts of things.
0: Yeah, it does feel like there's certainly been uh, some changes in terms of how we can access some of uh, the medical care that's out there. Dr. Ryan Kay, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Division Chief, Providence Regional Medical Center, Everett, on the phone from Everett, Washington. So it's considered one of the biggest threats to Apple in years. We've been talking about it on air a lot today, about how in a federal court, arguments are being heard in a trial that pits the makers of the iPhone and Fortnite against one another. It could be a video game. A mean one. Oh, it could be.
1: and Actually, you know what a pretty a good series on Apple TV, plus I think, too, right?
0: Also, see, it all ties together. <laughs> Let's get more. Uh, this story in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week. Let's get more from Bloomberg News Technology reporter Mark Gurman with us now from LA, along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber on the phone at Bloomberg headquarters. Joel, the outcome of this is going to be a big deal.
5: Yeah, and you're not gonna see it on uh, Apple TV. I don't think. Yeah, I don't think so. Uh, Probably not. We, maybe on like Amazon or something. But but um, ultimately, look like all we're all been kind of prepped for this one for a while, and it's the the beginning of the the epic epic showdown between <laughs> Apple and Epic. and And Mark, can you rewind the clock a little bit and take us back to when uh, these two um, rivals weren't rivals?
6: Yeah, sure. Thank you for having me. I mean, let's go back to 2011, about a month after Tim Cook became CEO, taking over for Steve Jobs. In his first announcement, it was time to announce the iPhone 4S. This was at the height of the beginning of the app store. This was at the top of the Apple versus Google rivalry. And the big new feature besides Siri for the iPhone 4S that year was this more powerful processor focused on gaming. So what better developer to have on stage to prove why you should buy the iPhone 4S, Tim Cook's first product? Well, Epic Games. They came on stage to show their new game, Infinity Blade 2, to show the power of both the App Store and that new processor. And now today, obviously, circumstances between the two companies are much, much different.
1: Mark, where did things go south? Things started to go south around
6: 2017, 2018 at the beginning of Fortnite. Fortnite was this new key game coming from Epic. It quickly became extraordinarily popular. And Epic was really, you know, minting cash from this game. And they were making close to potentially a billion dollars a year, or they projected they would be making a billion dollars a year from, from the app store on Fortnite. And when you're making that kind of money you're starting to give apple commissions well north of potentially 2 to 300 million dollars a year. Now, Epic is a big company, but even for a company the size of Apple, having to pay out of pocket 300 billion dollars, sorry, 300 million dollars before tax for that, for that income, that's pretty significant. And hey, that's really where the relationship began to rupture.
0: Mark, who's got the tougher case here to prove?
6: Ooh, for sure Epic. I think this is an uphill battle for Epic. Um, not because of, you know, my opinion or because of mm-hmm. what consumers might believe, be because of legal paperwork and signatures. You know, I learned very early on that <laughs> contracts are important, signatures are important, and your opinion of how horrible Apple might be in this situation, if you have signatures on paper, if it's a legal document in the eyes of the court, right, in the eyes of this judge, doesn't really matter. You know, for all intents and purposes, is Apple probably charging developers too much yes is apple probably going a little too far by requiring people to use its payment system and blocking alternative app stores yes a more open platform like android while still preserving privacy and a good user experience would be wonderful but all that is not really relevant for this particular case i still think though that apple will have to make some changes to really appease developers and users alike into the
5: future so, so, Mark, you know, what are you going to be watching for in this case? Obviously, there's going to be the outcome, but along the way, there might be some other things that um, will, will catch everyone's attention. What, what could some of those end up looking like?
6: Yeah, so actually have been going through some of the filings, the different discovery and pieces of evidence. And one that I'm actually working on a story right now about um, that was obviously already discussed publicly in the, in the hearing this morning is that Phil Schiller, who now runs the App Store and was previously Apple's marketing chief before about a year ago, sent an email to Eddie Q, who was head of the App Store 10 years ago in 2011, sort of floating the idea of needing to reduce the App Store commission. Now, this was in 2011. that they, they were talking about reducing the commission from 30% because they were getting super pro- profitable. Well, Apple didn't really make any real change to the commission structure until a few months ago in stating a 15% reduction for developers who generate under a million in revenue which, of course, as we all know, it's not relevant to Epic because they don't make under a million a year. They make
1: billion, over a billion a year,
6: potentially.
1: Right. So what are the repercussions if, if Apple ends up winning this? Because it's not just Epic that wants to, to Apple to take a smaller cut and, and wants more freedom to do what they want to do within the App Store and on their own apps. Who else would, would benefit if, if Apple ends up losing this case?
6: Yeah, if Apple ends up losing the, in this case, you're going to see the floodgates open. You're going to see Spotify wanting a very similar deal to Epic. You'll probably see that uh, motion for that nearly immediately. Other big developers who generate that kind of money, you know, Netflix, Spotify, Pandora, all these big players, they would be using Apple's payment system for sure because it's a so much better user experience if they didn't have to give that commission to Apple. So that's really what all the big guns want. They want the ability to use you know a built-in payment network without giving apple a commission if apple wins the lawsuit you're going to see a lot of developers up in arms you might see, you know a stronger regulatory push from you know antitrust officials i really think that even if apple you know wins this war right there's so much more to come oh,
0: i know exactly Get ready hey is tim cook gonna testify should we anticipate that at all mark
6: you should yeah tim cook is likely to testify I would guess in about a week, week and a half or so uh, onto the App Store. Uh, I'm looking forward to Phil Schiller's testimony this morning, who was in charge of the App Store and was the author of the email I mentioned.
0: I'm looking forward to reading your story about his testifying. <laughs> <laughs> All good stuff as always when it comes to anything and everything. Apple Mark, thank you, thank you. Mark Erman, technology reporter at Bloomberg News. This story in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week. It'll be on newsstands later on this week, online and on the Bloomberg. Joel Weber, or thanks to him as well, editor of Bloomberg Business Week, back at Bloomberg Headquarters. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes, Tim
2: Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio.
0: I am so excited about our next guest. Uh gets to some of the bigger broader issues facing our society. Hello, pandemic. We're talking about Neil Ferguson. He is the Milbank Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Bloomberg opinion columnist, well-known to our Bloomberg audience, author of many books, including The Great Degenerations and The Square and the Tower. He looks at the cracks in the American system, how we got there, including in his newest book. It's called Doom the Politics of Catastrophe. And we are so delighted to have Neil Ferguson with us on the phone from Stanford, California, and Stanford University. Neil, great to have you here. How how are you? Uh,
7: well, thank you. I, I almost feel like apologizing for being uh, <laughs> in good health when I've published a book called
0: Doom. <sighs> tell me about it. So tell us about, first of all, this past year, how did, obviously it impacted you, you wrote this book. Um, how was your world though? You said you're doing okay, doing well, but it was a year like no other.
7: Well, it was a year like many others actually, and that's part of the point of the book. It's not like this was the first pandemic to strike humanity. Uh, and indeed, if you compare it with other disasters like world wars, uh, this is not a top 20 catastrophe. Uh, so I actually found that this gave me an opportunity to take a step back and try to contextualize what was happening. There, there is a, a, a strong predisposition in our media today to say that everything is unprecedented, which just means we don't really know the history. Mm -hmm. The point of writing Doom was to remind people that, for example, the 1918, 19 influenza pandemic was far, far worse, killed uh, a far larger share of the world's population. Actually, today, this one is closer to the 1957-58 influenza Mm. pandemic, which not many people remember. And as for World Wars, which, you know, my grandparents uh, lived through, uh, this is actually, uh, although it might not seem that way on, on TV, this is really getting off lightly by historical standards.
1: Well, it certainly doesn't feel like it right now, living through this, because I think for a lot of people, this is our first pandemic, even those who were alive during the one in the 1950s and the very few people who are still around from the the one in the, you know, 100 years ago at this point. But I wonder about the response, especially from governments like the UK and the US, because early on in the book, you say it's kind of too simple to, to say that populist leaders were early on were the reason why those responses from those countries weren't the right wasn't the right way to look at it because you, you, you compare the case with Belgium and, and Belgium didn't have a, a, a great response either.
7: Right. The excess mortality in Belgium last year was higher than in the U.S. uh, or the U.K. I think the narrative that the excess mortality in the U.S. was Donald Trump's fault or in Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro's, the U.K., Boris Johnson. Now in India, it's it's all Narendra Modi's fault. This is a a very tempting narrative because we want to kind of pin the blame on the the person at the top. But when you look at the the global picture, it's not quite so clear cut because there were plenty of countries with non-populist leaders that did disastrously. Peru has had about as bad uh, an experience as any country. And uh, the the guy who was in president there uh, was not a populist. He only became president uh, almost by by accident. So I think there's a kind of temptation to simplify this story. And the way I would put it is this. In the US, Donald Trump made a whole succession of mistakes. It's tedious almost to list them all. He clearly misjudged the problem in, in multiple ways. Uh, There's nothing in my book that says he did a great job. But if we think it was all Donald Trump's fault that CDC completely screwed up testing in the first months of the pandemic, that we had no contact tracing system of the sort that they were able to do in Taiwan and in South Korea, and that we utterly failed to quarantine the people that were likely to be infected, that, that, that can't all be attributed to the president of the United States, who presides over a huge and complex bureaucracy, part of which has more or less one job which is to deal with a crisis like this and i think one has to say that the public health bureaucracies on both sides of the atlantic did very badly compared with say taiwan or or south korea the fact that they managed to contain the pandemic so successfully tells us that there was a much better playbook than the one that we used and yet we told ourselves that we had very high levels of pandemic preparedness so Why the flip side, well,
1: the other side of this coin is the countries that did respond well, Taiwan and South Korea, among others. What, what ties them together? Why did they respond well?
7: Well, one answer is approximate answer. They learned the lessons of, of SARS and MERS, previous outbreaks of, of a new coronavirus that we kind of didn't pay enough attention to. But I think that's a better answer, which is that these are countries that have good reasons to be generally paranoid. If you're Taiwan, you're right next. The People's Republic of China claims it owns you. If you're South Korea, you've got the crazies in the north to worry about. Israel also had a pretty good run, apart from one big spike last year. It also crushed the vaccination contest. And Israel has every reason to be paranoid. So I think the lesson that I learned from Doom is that it's better to be generally paranoid and worried about every potential contingency than to have one very detailed plan for a specific crisis that doesn't actually work when the crisis strikes
0: but and we've got about a minute and then we'll take a break and come back and continue the conversation but Neil we're at a point where people aren't even thinking about being paranoid about everything but they the only thing they are paranoid about certainly when it comes to politicians it feels is getting reelected and so is the the focus doesn't seem to be on the right thing either
7: i think we have a political system that increasingly encourages uh entertainers to enter politics and entertainers don't turn out to be great crisis managers. Mm. Uh, we've just placed a bet on a very, very experienced politician, Joe Biden, and we'll see if experience works better. It, it ought to. Uh, but maybe in uh, in the next part of this conversation, we can discuss if, if there'll be another crisis, quite different crisis that comes to challenge Joe Biden.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the big question. And certainly it seems like with with the vaccine rollout, it seems to be going in the right direction. Um, We only have about 45 seconds, 30 seconds left, excuse me. But why write this book now before the pandemic's over?
7: Well, the book is not really about the pandemic. The last hundred pages deal with the recent, recent past. But the main point of the book is it's a general history of disaster. We have to learn a a general lesson about what's going wrong here because the next disaster won't be a pandemic. It'll be something else.
0: Hey, so Neil, you were saying just before uh, we did some news that President Biden's experience will get to see if whether or not this is a plus for kind of getting us through this crisis. Talk about that a little bit more specifically.
7: Well, one of the points I make in game is that presidents tend not to get the crises that they're prepared for. Uh, I don't think uh, anybody really had George W. Bush marked down as a wartime president. Uh, prior to 9-11, just to give uh, a single example, uh, the crises that uh, uh, his uh, successor had to contend with uh, extended from the financial crisis he inherited to the opioid epidemic. So you you tend to find that each president is kind of caught out by something for which uh, he's not prepared. Now, Joe Biden's been uh, at so many political rodeos that you'd have (laughs) thought he'd have seen everything. But What really fascinates me about the Biden administration is the way they talk up the analogies with uh, Lyndon Johnson. So we're being told that what the Biden administration is doing is going to be as transformational as the Great Society programs or civil rights legislation, kind of forgetting that the thing that destroyed Lyndon Johnson's presidency was a foreign policy disaster in Asia, namely Mm -hmm. Vietnam. And that's the thing that I think the Biden administration has kind of like a ticking time bomb the relationship with China and the potential for a serious escalation in that uh, very tense relationship, perhaps over over Taiwan. And that's why I wouldn't be tempting faith by comparing myself with Lyndon Johnson. uh, And I was born in 1964 when Johnson was elected.
0: Yeah. If anyone saw 60 Minutes last night and their interview with Secretary of State Antony Blinken, that is certainly first and foremost the relationship with Asia, but China specifically and where that goes. Let me ask you something, Neil. If catastrophe is innately unpredictable, then we are kind of all doomed, as your book lays out. I mean, is there really any way that we can ever be prepared for that next disaster? Yes, I think
7: there is. And and in a way, Taiwan showed how you do it. You've got to respond very rapidly. You can't predict these things and say there's going to be a pandemic in January 2020 uh, any more than you can say with confidence the world is going to end from climate change uh, in 12 years' time, uh, as AOC did back in 2019. So let's stop pretending that we can make accurate predictions about these things and instead cultivate a kind of general readiness So that the government uh, and indeed corporations respond nimbly when disaster strikes. Disaster comes in all kinds of shapes and sizes. The big danger is to adopt a bureaucratic mindset and say, this is the disaster we're going to prepare for. And we're not really going to think about the other ones. And I think there's been a tendency to do that with respect to climate change. Remember, back in January 2020, what was the number one item on the agenda at the World Economic Mm -hmm. Forum at Davos? I remember I was there. Climate change. And the pandemic has already begun nobody
1: was talking about it I I wonder though if a country like the United States uh, and the way that people think about Liberty and talk about Liberty if it would be impossible for us to respond in a way that a country that did respond well responded because this because the people who live here wouldn't necessarily follow those rules and we see it playing out with People refusing masks, and we saw this a year ago, just videos of people going into stores and not wearing masks as a show of, hey, you can't make me do that.
7: It's true that this is a country with a strong uh, libertarian individualist streak. And I don't think we could be China, uh, but I'm not arguing that we should be. uh, And and in fact, part of what we did, which I think was mistaken, was to copy uh, the mainland China lockdown approach that, that they adopted in late January 2020 uh, we did that in many states uh, from the middle of March onwards. Uh, the Taiwanese never locked down. In fact, they had the lowest stringency of any major economy. What they did was to respond very rapidly. And here's the key, to use technology in ways that actually empowered and informed citizens. Audrey Tang is the digital minister there who's pioneered this approach. And, you know, frankly, I'd, I'd far rather have an effective contact tracing app on my phone and be confined to my house under effective house arrest for right. weeks on end. If if that's, if that's liberty then I you know I'm, I'm I'm definitely a banana.
0: Is part of what's going on and just got about a minute left here is that one person or one country's catastrophe is perhaps another person's gain that is ne- not necessarily true with the pandemic but we do know that developed countries who might come out of this sooner have the opportunity for their economies to do better and everything that comes with it. So I I do wonder if some of that's at play. And again, just got about 50 seconds here.
7: It's a two or three speed world now because the parts of the world, including the U.S., that have vaccinated rapidly are going to recover very rapidly. The countries that are lagging behind are being ravaged by the disease. India and Brazil, they're going to suffer. So, yeah, it's at least a two if not a three speed world For the foreseeable future but i think anybody who bet that china was somehow going to be the winner from this catastrophe that bet is beginning to look wrong to me and the us is bouncing back much faster than people would have predicted a year ago
0: yeah, absolutely. Neil, thank you so much. You're so thoughtful with so much, and hopefully we can get you back again uh, real so- soon. Good luck with the book. It's called Doom the Politics of Catastrophe. Of course, that was Neil Ferguson, Millbank Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. You can find him on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com. And he's written a ton of books looking yeah. at different disasters in our world.